Hi, this is Eddie Deason. You're listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall. I was Mandark in Dexter's Laboratory. Ha 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 ha. You are listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall on Realm of the Mist Entertainment. Hey, what's up, guys? Chris Fristali back for another Breaking the Fourth Wall. And this is the first time on Breaking the Fourth Wall that I'm going to have an interview with not one, not two, but three lovely ladies. And I promise you I'm going to be on my best behavior and a gentleman because these women like to sit down and talk about people killing people. And I don't want to be one of those people that get killed. So at the end of the day, I want to introduce you guys to the cast of the Good Wives Guide to True Crime podcast. Ladies, Colleen, Fancy, and Christina, correct? Yeah, yeah, Christina, welcome to the show. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. All right, well, the first and foremost question I got to ask, and I, th- I know most people are going to ask, ask this of themselves, too. It's like, what got you into wanting to even associate with true crime? Like, before even the podcasting, what, what drew your attention to, to real-life murder mysteries, if it were? Um, well, this is fancy. And for me, I mean, the, the obsession started pretty pretty young in my teen years, I think. I mean, I was aware of it before that. I had um, a friend whose father killed her stepmother, and it was very tragic for me, and I think that kind of made my awareness really different. Um, But the first case that I truly remember, like, thinking and sinking my teeth into was uh, Diane Downs, which I was graduating high school when the Farrah Fawcett one came out, Small Sacrifices, and I watched that, and that was like, oh, my God, that's that's, that's it. I I just, and after that, that was all, I just consumed it, like, crazy. Anytime a news story would hit, I'd go and I'd research it and look it up and try and see everything I could watch on it, so... I mean, it started pretty early, um, but I think it really rooted back to the fact that I had actually been involved in something like that. Because the night that um, the the murder of my friend's stepmother happened, I was actually supposed to be there, and I got grounded that night, and I didn't go. Oh, wow. So, um, so I could have potentially been there to witness that, too. And I think that kind of got me on this path because he was such a... He was a volunteer fireman. He was an amazing father, very kind heart. I'd never seen him ever be angry, nothing. And she, you know, I loved her very much. We were very close, but she um, was a very henpecky kind of woman. She just picked on him constantly. She was kind of bullyish, you know. And so I began to think what made him snap that day? Because he just basically what happened was he walked outside. They were in an argument. The kids were actually taping it, so it all got taped on like a recorder, um, like a tape recorder back in the day, because um, wow. this is the early, early 90s. And so it was that he was arguing with her, and then he walked out to his truck. He got his gun out of the truck. He came back in and shot her in the kitchen and then called 911 and said, I just shot my wife, you know? And, and so that to me was, I think, by beginning of trying to figure out what causes a person to take another person's life. Okay. Colleen, how about you? We'll, we'll, we'll choose you next. 
Uh, so I'm a nurse. Um, I'm also a nursing instructor for a uh, local college uh, here in Wisconsin. Um, then when I was in my undergrad, I took, a, have to, you have to take a lot of sociology and uh, just random general education credits. Right. Um, and ever since I was a little kid, I love history. It's just the subject I do the best in. Um, I have a deep fascination with history. My dad is a paralegal. And so he had kind of criminal justice textbooks because uh, he's like 41. So he's young. He had me when he was in high school. Okay. Um, and so he had these books lying around. And as soon as I started paying attention to actual real life and kind of growing up as a preteen, I found him and started reading them. And it didn't disturb me or anything. It was just more fascinating. Um, and then throughout high school, I took a specific interest in uh, World War II, which then when I went into college, I started, uh, I got like a history minor in specifically the study of the Holocaust, but also the uh, conflicts and different civil wars happening in the Middle East. And so I do a lot of research on war crimes specifically. Okay. And then learning about that has gotten me really interested in the true crime that happens in our own country. And why the, all these you know criminal cases happen what causes a person to do this you know it, to me it's the same why does somebody become a serial killer why does somebody commit genocide you know it's why um and so that's kind of where i got into it um and then afterwards uh let fancy discuss how we all kind of got together I was going to go there, and you were definitely jumping the gun because I definitely wanted to dig into the <laughs> psychology of it a little bit uh, it, through through your lady's own researches. But uh, before we do, I definitely want to get uh, Christine's, Christina's take on, on what brought her into this, uh, some might say morbid hobby, but it, it, it really is more about statistics rather than like hero worship of a, of a murderer or rapist, obviously. I, I want to make that clear for the listeners. The ladies, the ladies here are interested in the case and the facts, and kind of, kind of like uh, you think of a TV show like Cold Case, almost like that mind frame. Exactly. I think, you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, for me, this is Christina. For me, it started. I was probably about ten or eleven, and I was one of those nerdy kids. So I used to love to read everything I could get my hands on. So. Uh, at the breakfast table before school, I would grab the newspaper at 10, 11 years old, and I'd read the newspaper. And there was a case in the late 80s in New York City. A little girl named Lisa Steinberg was abused and murdered by her adoptive parents, which they adopted her illegally. And I was just so fascinated at that age. Like, I couldn't understand how could grown-ups do something like that to a kid that they were supposed to be raising and loving as their own and it just started the interest in me I was I just needed to know like every time there was any kind of crime on the news or in the newspaper I wanted to know everything I could know and like you said it's not I know some people might think like oh well, that's creepy you know they they like true crime and it's not about liking true crime. Yes, we are fascinated by things. We, we like the whole process of learning about the facts, but part of it is also wanting to stop things, wanting to learn how we can make changes to prevent these things from happening in the future. And that was a big thing for me was, was children being murdered by their parents. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I shared the, the sentiment. I have children who uh, unfortunately were victims 
of uh, a different type of crime to, to children. Uh, I'll leave it at that with one being in the room. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, absolutely. Part, part, of, part of everything that we do, uh, especially when it comes to this, is like we hope to find the patterns and, and, and to, yeah. to, to know the, the, the signs to be able to stop exactly. it. Which, exactly. Which kind of leads me to my next question. Out of, all, out of all the shows and all the cases that you guys have dealt with thus far, even before podcasting when you were doing it on your own, Mm-hmm. Percentage-wise, and obviously I don't expect the exact graphics, you know, but uh, percentage-wise, how often is it something that was Marilyn, or not Marilyn, uh, Charlie Manson, De- Jeffrey Dahmer premeditated just pure evil, and how much of it uh, turned out to just be like crime of passion? Like, uh, uh, for for example, when, when Fancy was talking about the, the, the guy who, who, who murdered uh, his wife uh, that, that she knew, Mm-hmm. He was pillar of the community, nicest guy on the planet, and just one thing set him off. I mean, I think it's a really even balance between those yeah. two things. Um, I don't think there's like I can't give you like like you said I can't give you a statistical fact, you know, um, because I don't I don't really deal in that kind of looking at it statistically. I'm more interested in what caused the events to happen. So the event itself, to me, is most the most boring part of the whole thing. Like the the murder itself, I, I I'm not so interested in that. I am interested in all the things that happened to lead up to that moment, you know, and even in crimes of passion, it's still the same thing. It's, it's, you have to look at it and go, but what made that person snap in that moment? Like why, where, what was happening? Because it doesn't just happen. Even with serial killers, you're not, you know, we, it doesn't just happen. It, it, there is a reason for all of these things. Now we may not always understand them, but there definitely is a path of of that happens you know and that's what we like to look a lot into especially on our youtube channel which is actually murder by design because we look into these ideas of what causes a person to do this how how did they become and i don't really believe that i would see a very small portion of killers in all realms serial killers everything there is a very small very very small portion that are actually evil from birth you know that are born born as we call it like a bad seed right no it's really um something that is created inside of them by a series of other events yeah so i 100 percent agree with that um what we see a lot is more of crimes of opportunity not necessarily Mm -hmm. planning, you know, people who do terrible things, you know, murder, assaults, uh, sex crimes. It's a lot of that, that desire is in the back of their head. And then when they see an opportunity to fulfill that need, want desire, then they may take it. So not necessarily like with serial killers, like, uh, with like Ted Bundy, for example, you know, he wanted to do that, but he had to find the right person on the street looking for a ride or somebody who was alone or a place where he could seclude somebody so that way he could take them. But it wasn't, you know, like directly, I'm going to take this person. It was, I see you. I mm-hmm. can get you alone and you're my type. So I'm going to choose you. Um, 
Well, that, that, so, that that's exactly what I mean. It's like uh, I know there's ones out there that that's what I meant by pure evil. And when I use like Charlie Manson mm-hmm. or, or Jeffrey Dahmer as mm-hmm. an example, that's what I was meaning. It's like these guys premeditated what they wanted to do. They thought about it for a long time, even before the act ever occurred for the first time, whether off the 15th time. But how many how many murders out there were literally like the person woke up a day like any other day and just some catalyst sent them down the wrong path? Well, okay, so what you're kind of touching on here is something that we deal with in serial killers. Now, people people tend to think of serial killers when they're thinking of people killing people. It's just a natural thing for them to really think about um, because they're the most interesting cases, truthfully, you know, because it goes on for a long period of time and it covers so many people. But what you're really kind of touching on here is the difference between a disorganized and an organized um, killer. And so a disorganized killer is what Colleen said, a killer of opportunity who just kind of seizes the moment and they may not have the the neatest crime scene you know they may not have all these different things but then a organized killer you know that's a killer who plans it out to the letter you know they're going to do this and while they may not know the victim that they're going to take they definitely have a specific methodology of what they're going to do and and it's every single time it's the same you know when you're talking about something like that that's like the golden state killer who was just um, arrested or the zodiac killer who they've never actually released who they think it is. I mean, there's a good possibility people know who it is, but um, they've never actually officially put anybody to being the Zodiac Killer. Uh, When you're talking about like Jeffrey Dahmer, um, yes, Dahmer was very organized. He planned it out and everything, but if you look into his life and and what he went through, and, and there's actually a catalytic moment for him in his childhood. So what they say they think happened is he went in for um, some sort of surgery at the age of six. And I can't remember exactly what that was, but he went in for this surgery. He was a really happy, sweet, kind kid, came back from that surgery, and there was a darkness with inside of him. And he was a completely different kid. So, you know, I mean, I think... Obviously, there's there's a lot of crimes of passion out there, but we don't hear about them, you know. But um, even the ones that you would say is a crime of passion can still be, even in a moment, premeditated. Because premeditation isn't something that's necessarily years or days or, you know, months. It can be a minute. And as soon as you make that decision of I'm going to kill this person right now, that's premeditation. So it can be in the moment of a crime of passion. Right, because with uh, vehicular manslaughter, you don't intend to hit somebody with your car and right. kill them. That's right. just, it's a murder that happens that was, you know, could be at your fault or not at fault, but it's, you know, that's a murder, but you didn't plan to do that. You didn't think mm-hmm. about purposely killing somebody. Um, mm-hmm. Right. But, and, and you know, for, if. For the listeners listening, that's why we have different degrees of. Uh, of murder and manslaughter charges on the uh, based on the fact of whether it was premeditated, whether there was intent, whether it was accidental. You know, there's a lot of factors yes. that go into somebody's death that was caused by somebody else that comes into play. That's why somebody, uh, for for sake of argument, uh, not to go too deep into in the modern times, but like the George Floyd case, the reason they couldn't go for murder one on that cop is they cannot prove that it was premeditated. Correct. You know, so that's the reason why there's degrees of of, of uh, mm-hmm. murder charges, felony charges, and stuff like that. So that way they can fit the charge to the crime. Correct. 
correct. I'm sorry. Please continue. I just want to. I'm, I'm trying to educate people as I'm educating myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're doing. You're doing good. You're doing great. You're doing fine. You're doing fine. <laughs> um, like so, obviously, I you know I said I'm from Wisconsin. I live in Milwaukee. Um, I have people in my family who had actually worked with Dahmer. Um, I have been around where his building was. It you know it was since demolished. Um, there was no safe in that building. Um, and so I'm, you know, aware of this area he was in and kind of this, what was happening in the city at that time. Um, and so like, we really like to, you know, discuss why somebody does what they're about to do. And so like in Dahmer's example, and I, I mean, everybody thinks about Dahmer because he killed and then ate people and then tried to make zombies. Uh, but he had that surgery when he was a kid his mom was an alcoholic and abandoned him. And then his dad abandoned him when he was a teen and left him alone in their house. Right. And so he didn't have an emotional support system. He was a loner at school. He, I think he did have some sort of mental health condition. Not that he was insane, just had a mood disorder of some sort. And then he had, he did the classic signs that we see of serial killers he uh, started abusing drug uh, alcohol as a teenager. He was skinning mm-hmm. and killing small animals as a child and as a teenager. Um, and I think around that time is when he was exploring his own sexuality, which wasn't um, something in his family that would have been acceptable. You know, he tried going into the military to straighten himself out, but you know, just uh, that didn't work out because of the drinking. So he has all these life experiences that, you know, built up inside of him. And he had said before he was killed in prison that, and he was very candid, you know, honest about what he did and saying that I didn't want to do it. I don't like it. I didn't want to do it. It was just always there. And I just wanted to love somebody. That's why he wanted to create these zombies because he just wanted someone to love him. Well, that that brings up a very good point uh, that I was going to bring up uh, before. But since we're since we're on Jeffrey Dahmer, we could start with him. Um, like, I, I I almost want to disagree with you a little bit about like a mental disorder, because like, okay, yeah, I, I know that you could kill somebody without being crazy or or insane. But some of the things like eating people or or trying to create zombies, uh, you know, this is the real world. Zombies don't exist. Um, you know. There, there's got to be some level of, of mental instability to, to, to live in those types of fantasy, fantasy scenarios, especially when you throw what? in the fact, like you said, one of, the, one of the mitigating catalysts to a lot of serial killers is harm to innocent things like animals. Um, I myself am a person I could never even think. I, I, dude, I feel bad for three days when I step on the cat's tail. Uh, you know, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I totally get what you're saying. And um, I don't necessarily liken it to like a mental disorder because, all right, so I kind of have a problem in this country with the fact that we have an insanity plea. Um, because in my opinion, anyone who takes another person's life cannot possibly be in their right mind unless it's self-defense, correct? Right. So, um So here's the thing, though. It's not necessarily that I'm chalking it up to like a mental disorder, but it is very common that there are specific 
things and inciting incidents that happen to trigger these things in their minds. So for instance, you know, you talked about Dahmer and I told you, you know, he had a lot of different things that happened to him. And when they start off with like animals, I think it's a trying to understand this urge that they're having, but they don't necessarily want to do what they're doing. So they're doing it in, um, an, an attempt to maybe try to understand it's disgusting and sad and it's terrible and i and i think i have even more problems with hurting innocent animals than hurting people sometimes unless it's a child because it's just they're so innocent and they don't know okay but if you look at somebody like the golden state killer for instance who you know just got arrested and and prosecuted and, and pled out to over um 63 different counts of um of murders and rapes and various things so, but here's the thing with him, at, at an early age of nine, he actually was forced to watch somebody rape his seven-year-old sister. So if you look at that and you think, okay, so he was having to do, he was forced to do that. And then you think of what did he do to his victims? Well, um, in the beginning it was just women, but then the police kind of said something that triggered him into a, like a hold my beer situation, you know, where it was right. like, oh, well, he's never been into a home that has a male or a dog in it. Well, the very next thing was a male and a dog. Right. So, um, but then what he would do to the men in those situations was he would tie them up and, and put them in another room they didn't necessarily have to watch but they had to hear and they were completely rendered helpless which is what he experienced when he was young now does that make it right no absolutely it doesn't but it does give you some insight into his mind and what is causing that now i don't truly think that that's like a mental disorder um yeah you know Dahmer says, oh, I was trying to create zombies. Well, so does Lori Vallow. And if you look at the case that we've spent a lot of our time on, you know, four years of an investigation into the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case, Nicholas John claims that there's a 500-year-old vampire living inside of him. Do I think that he really believes that? No. There, He has several different personalities. And what he does with these personalities is that he gives them each like an actual persona so that he, in a, in a way, each one of them say these things like oh it wasn't me it was so and so um you know blah 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 and and so you think about that and it's like well the reason that they're saying i had a person inside of me or i was creating zombies or i have a 500 year old vampire inside of me is because they're looking for a way to kind of shirk the blame, you know, and put it onto something else. Well, it wasn't me. It's not Nicholas Godejohn. No, it's Victor, the 500-year-old vampire that did this. Does that make sense? It, it makes sense, but it also draws another question to the, uh, I hate to use the term, but copycats uh, to the serial killers mm -hmm. like that. And one of the first mm -hmm. ones I come to is the uh, the Colorado uh, 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 movie theater killer, the one who, yes. who proclaimed himself to be mm -hmm. the Joker. Yes. To me, it never felt like a mental instability, and it definitely never felt yeah. like something where he truly believed this multiple personality disorder or whatever it is that it, that may have been for a lot of these other people, like the 5,000-year-old vampire, for example. To me, it was just like he used it as an excuse or as a, a scapegoat for his actions. Right. Correct. It definitely it, – it really – that's why we – go you know in depth on certain cases or maybe only one episode on others is because it all depends on the mitigating circumstances of their life and leading up to the crime they committed um like and so when i talk or when i say about you know some sort of mental condition or mood disorder more i'm 
I kind of think that there's a mental break at some point mm-hmm. where reality right. shifts for them. So correct that they know like something happened in their life that pretty much just shatters, you know, the moral fabric in them. And it just causes a mental break where reality is not the same reality that the rest of us experience. Um, and then they're, you know, and if you look at scans of serial killers brains, they look different than, or sociopaths, they look different than not sociopaths. So something is actually mm-hmm. happening to their brain for them to think that way. And they have the capability to think that way. Cause not every sociopath is a killer. Most killers right. many can of them be. become, many yeah. of the sociopaths go on to become, you know, CEOs and lawyers and things like that. Very successful people because they have a drive and they don't um, succumb to the same kind of thought processes that everybody else thinks of, you know, like, so they're very driven because they don't worry about all the other things, you know, that's what they're focused on. Well, let, let's get Christina in, into this uh, into this conversation. I'll ask her uh, a question here if she's still available. I know she's on mute because she she did ha- does have yeah. some issues in the background. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, oh, now I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, the question I was going to ask you um, in your experience in, a, in studying a lot of these cases and everything, uh, I can't help but draw parallels to a lot of the actions to the, to the, the cases that I've known. Which are the cases I know are the ones that like most people know, you know, without doing mm-hmm. much research. Yeah, but uh, you can't help but draw very, very similar parallels to the crimes also being in a in a sexual nature, in a sense. Like the the, the murder was sensual and, and sexual to them. I don't mean necessarily that there was always a rape with the murder or something. I mean like the act of the murder itself was almost like a sexual release for them. Is it, would I be correct in that? Well, we, we actually saw that a lot of that in the Gypsy Rose case with Nicholas Godejohn because there was a sexual aspect. There wasn't actually a rape, but that was an aspect of it where he wanted to do certain things. And there's even on, on her body, it, it appears as if he tried to write in blood, like to leave his signature almost. And we know that there was a sexual aspect to it. And there were also questions in the interrogation that let you know that they found evidence that there was a sexual aspect to it. So I definitely think that that's something that we see a lot. And it, and it you know, so a couple of things, like I wanted to expand on what Colleen said about um, these serial killers and, and the trauma and different things and, and the scans of a sociopath. So one of the things with serial killers is most serial killers have some sort of brain um, frontal lobe trauma before the age of 21. So again, that would speak to Dahmer and his, you know, changing at six. Um, but what Christina is saying about the sexual component, um, most now when you're talking about a crime of passion or somebody that knows somebody, you know, and they murder them like a wife or a husband, necessarily that's not going to be there, you know. But when you're talking about these serial killer types of things, it's not really sexual. Now, it, it translates to sexual for them in a way that it it's something that makes them that makes them feel, you know, good. And, and, and it's a sexual, yeah. you know, it's a sexual like um, it's a satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, sexual release, yeah, but it's release. more about power than anything for most serial killers. Uh, it's a sense of feeling um, superior. It's a sense of being more powerful than, especially in something like Ted Bundy. So Ted didn't do anything to these women other than murder them, you know? Um, and he bit it viciously and brutally. And you know why? 
because he could. That's what his whole thing was. Like he just wanted to see how much he could do. What could he do to a person? And how easy was it to break into a, you know, a sorority house that happened to have an unlocked back door? And he thought, well, that's the opportunity. I'm just going to go in here and kill four people, you know? Um, so power is definitely the main driving force in these cases, but it definitely translates into some sort of satisfaction. Well, so with Bundy, like Bundy did have do some necrophilia with his victims after mm-hmm. they were right. dead. The thing that we do see very common is that when a serial killer or multiple murderer uh, kills somebody and, you know, it's kind of like a planned or an idea in their head, it's typically they are not killing the victim. They are killing somebody else. Like what, whether it's their mother, their father, sister, aunt, grandma, you know, girlfriend, girlfriend, you know, they aren't looking at this individual. Like, I don't like you, Karen, I'm going to kill you. They're like, no, my, you look like my mom and I hate my mom. So I'm going to kill you and take out my anger feelings on you and substitute you for my mom. See that that was going to be that was going to be kind of my next question, especially with the uh, kind of follow up on the sexuality was was the fact that like do a lot of serial killers and killers in general, notwithstanding the the domestic violence out of control. But on on average, like you said, with the girlfriends, the the ex-wives, the the, the mothers, the the whatever, you know, um, is that part of their focus and fixation and in turn also part of their sexuality, like the girl that turned them down on the prom? And for a second point, I know we've talked a lot about, like, guys who attack girls, you know, as far as, like, serial mm-hmm. killers are concerned. But there's there's also the opposite. There, there have been some female serial killers, maybe not as publicized, but there have been as well. And were their victims also female or were they male as well? How often is it that it's uh, usually violence against the opposite sex as opposed to same-sex murders? I mean, you definitely really have to look at uh, the specific cases. Um, with men killers, you typically see it as, you know, the substitution of a person or a sexual component or things got out of control in a situation right. um, or, you know, hurt, you know, feelings like or, you know, bullying kind of situations like that. Whereas on the women's side, when we look at women serial killers, um, you're mostly looking at things about like jealousy, rage. Um, sexual trauma, right? Sexual um, trauma, like like Eileen, you know, Eileen yeah, Warnos, like you know, she she was killing because of something that happened to her, you know. Um, but a lot, so women tend to to kill people they know. Um, there is it, there that's and that's one of the reasons why there are so few women serial killers and even the serial killers other than Eileen, um, like I'm thinking about something I talked about today was Mary Beth Tinning who killed nine of her children before she was arrested for killing the ninth child and and basically you know she was they were chalking all these deaths up to SIDS like a sudden infant death syndrome you know right and um, and so generally when we're looking at women that's more of what we're seeing and that's kind of like that fits into the case that we you know like i said we spent tons and tons of time on which is gypsy rose and and that case was very interesting in the fact that every single person in there was all perpetrators and every single one of them was a victim including nicholas so it's it was a very strange crazy case because 
it, it, it could be justified in so many ways and then not justified in others, you know? So when you're looking at women, it's very personal. When you're looking at men, um, a lot of times it's, it's mo generally not a personal thing with that person. But when you're looking at women, that's generally what you're looking at. And, and of course, the, through your through your combined experiences uh, through through the years that you've uh, done this, I, I would I would almost call you guys professionals uh, when it when it comes to, to studying these types of facets. How much of it is like like we've been talking the whole entire time where it's external uh external experiences that led towards a, a serial killer be it a abusive household or or uh, some some personal trauma that led them that way but how much of it too is like just the loss of of uh personal self-control like in in the end of the day where human beings are still animals how much of it is just animal instinct that was not put in check by so human I'll morality give I'll give like a general what I assess kind of the situation in terms of those two different statistics. I think that three out of four cases is uh, like the first part that you had mentioned um, that there's an emotional component at somewhere in that case. Um, and I think, you know, one third of cases is that uh, snap uh, judgment or, you know, uh, animalistic human behavior uncontrolled feeling i find that it's more the case that we see of there's some mm -hmm. emotional or psychological issue in the killer that they look for in a victim and they think about it in that sense um like um ed kemper um he, his you know killings a lot of it was in relation to the treatment from his the women in his life um, correct and where you see like that uncontrolled, you know, animalistic behavior, I think it's more rare for that than it is to have that emotional or psychological connection. Well, even, even then, it's still coming from somewhere. Where, yeah. It doesn't just come out in just, okay, a crime of passion, that's not evil or anything like that. That might be something that happens in the moment and, and it happens in the person, the person that does it, such as my, my friend's, you know, my friend's dad. I, I don't think he even knew what he was doing in the moment. He just did it, okay? So, but still it came from somewhere. So it's not just a snap. Now, we, we talk about it that way. Oh, they just snapped. But what caused that snap? Again, it goes back to there is something going on, such as in the case of Gypsy. You know, Gypsy didn't just decide to kill her mom because she decided to kill her mom. Like, there is an entire, like, lengthy, decades-long story. Her entire that, life. You know, go and, and, and not even That's just her, her entire mom, life, her, going her all the way back yeah, going all the way back to her, her grandparents, her mother, her, and then for Nicholas, like him to get brought into that, there was a lot of things that you, that there were signs and warning signs and things that happened that caused him to be the perfect mate for her to actually do what they did. So I would say, I think it's more close to like 90% of these, and, and it may even be higher than that, that are really, it's all about factors like i just don't know anyone that's just born inherently evil i, I just don't think that that happens I, I mean i guess there's a couple that i can think of well that, i was about um, to say let's let's play let's play an exercise for a moment would you sure. argue would you argue then then that uh let, let, let's choose somebody that we 
usually associate as the all-time evil. Let, let's all right. I'll, I'll 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 go with it. Adolf Hitler, born evil or product of society? Product of society. Product, product of society. Yeah. So that's product my zone. That's my specialty. Yeah. So uh, Adolf Hitler was a young teen during World War One. His family dealt with a lot of suffering because of World War One, and they need you know the, that country trying to rebuild after the First World War, then suffered a lot of poverty, and people started looking for a scapegoat. Who can we blame for our economy literally falling apart? Hundreds and thousands of mm-hmm. our people are dead. Who can we blame? And then they looked at, for, at the um, disproportionate amount of people who are different. You know, there were um, the Polish and other minorities that they thought of as less than them as they were German. They thought of themselves as superior. And then they blamed um, the Jewish people because they said that Jewish people had more of the money and they must have done something to take all of the money from us and they need to be punished and they're not as good as we are Mm -hmm. as Germans. And then they took that same ideology and applied it to prisoners of war, to uh, the gypsy population, to homosexuals and to the uh, mentally and physically disabled. And, you know, they tested out how little or how much they could get away with uh, in the beginning. Like first it was just, you know, the disabled um, and they would tell people, oh, they died. And then when people, you know, that was trying to brush under the rug, we're not going to pay attention to that. They're sick anyway. Well, then we move Mm -hmm. into the social uh, zones were, you know, split down the middle. Like, okay, well, war prisoners and homosexuals. Well, we're, you know, Christian, Catholic, and we don't, you know, we think that should be illegal. So it's okay that we kill them because they're horrible and committing sin. And then we, then you're getting away with more and more and more murder and starting, you know, the genocide. Oh, gypsies, they're dirty. They, you know, travel around or disease, you know, okay, well, we can get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And then they mm-hmm. start rounding up all of the Jewish people in Europe to then say, they're the problem with our economy. They're what's going to keep the rest of us down and drag society down so we can, and you pr- put this propaganda into, you know, the media over time. It wasn't just, you know, one day they started just shipping the Jews and trains to concentration camps. It was, multiple years of uh, the politicization of that and having, you know, posters, videos made pretty much getting the public to believe that they are less than human and it doesn't matter what we do to them. And so once you get society to that point, then, you know, they just kind of blank it off and don't, you know, like they know it's happening, but they're not going to say anything about it because their life may be better now. Right. But, but that, that kind of, that kind of helps, that kind of helps it describe the, uh, the rise of the Reich itself. I'm meaning the man Mm -hmm. himself, Adolf Hitler. What was the, if if he wasn't born evil, what was the catalyst that changed him from somebody who was trying to help the German people to the vindictive mass murderer antichrist that we know of him as today? 
Well, it well, looks like back. Well, this goes back again. Let, let, let me say this goes back again to that whole idea of power. OK, so I believe that Hitler really, truly believed that he was doing the right thing for his country, you know, and he thought that he was going to come in and fix everything. And he was going to fix the problems and he wanted to have a beautiful country and um, that was flourishing economically, all these different things. But when you begin to get into this this realm of power for someone like that, I don't think again, I don't I still don't think that he was born evil. I think it's a power play. And then like Colleen said, you know, you start one thing and it's not like he killed the Jews on day one. It's not like he was like, oh, those damn Jews, I've got to kill them. That's going to be what I run my campaign on. No, he came in saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to change that. And then this is what's going to happen. And then it became that, you know, um, because people, again, kept pushing for why is this happening? Why is our country like this? And he gave him an answer. Was it the right answer? Hell no. But he gave him an answer. And I was thinking about your question about like snapping. OK, so right. you asked if Hitler was just born evil or can people just snap? And the closest that I've come to seeing a person just snap. Um, is like the case that we're covering right now, Jody Arias. Now, okay. Jody lived a normal life, okay? Her parents were, you know, very, very normal parents. There wasn't a divorce. There wasn't anything like that that was, you know, a catalyst for her to be, you know, she claimed that at one point in time that she was abused. But then in her closing, you know, in her plea for not being given the death penalty, she begs so that my family doesn't, you know, doesn't have to suffer my loss because they've already suffered enough, you know? So she didn't have anything like that but again it's still not a snap situation because what happened with her is you know there is some jealousy and some rage and she wanted to be the perfect person for him and he wasn't going to give that to her and he was going off with some other girl and she planned that I, I there is no realm in which she just showed up had sex with him and then just all of a sudden decided hey you know what i'm gonna do today i'm gonna kill you travis no it didn't happen that way she had that in her mind and there was still things that caused that now is it the right things no i mean any normal person would go through that situation and act completely different but it's something within their minds that this is justified or this is the way it should be or uh, this is the only way you know i'm looking at the vallows right now they killed their children because of supposedly some you know religious belief that they believed that the world was ending on july 22nd of this year didn't happen um you know and that their children were zombies and that her husband was a zombie before that but what i really think that that was all about is that Lori didn't want to be a mom anymore and she wanted to go off and have a fun life with her new hubby so i mean it's kind of there's still always mitigating circumstances that lead up to this no matter what you look i at. think i think overwhelmingly that's what we've seen i mean that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. that we named our youtube murder by design because it seems like almost every case when we do the research there's always a backstory it doesn't just start with the person who killed someone if you go back into their childhood, there's all, there's usually something. We saw that with Gypsy. We went back into her mom's childhood, and it went back as far as when her mom was a kid and, and how she grew up. So I think overwhelmingly we do see that where there's some there's some something emotional attached mm -hmm. that that has happened somewhere in the past. Now that doesn't happen for all people. Most of us have gone through horrible things in our lives, and we don't kill people afterwards. 
but that's part of the pattern. That's part of what we're trying to put together is what what happens in someone's past. And it's not a justification, of course, but even when you look at pedophiles, majority of pedophiles have been victims at some point in their life before they grew up and, and you know, kept the cycle going. Right. So most cases we look at, we have found like, wait a minute, this didn't start here. Let's look back at what the parents were like. And it's like, okay, well, this explains a lot of what made this person the way they are. A case from the top of my head, Chris Watts. I see Chris Mm -hmm. Watts as a product of his parents, 100%. That man was not born evil. It, 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 it was a product of, of what he grew up in. And I think that comes into where with, with what Colleen said, when a lot of these killings we see, the person they're killing is not who they're killing in their mind. And mm-hmm. I honestly believe that with Chris Watts, it was his mother that he was killing. All right. Well, I got I, I that leads me that leads me back to to your guys's podcast and, and your research abilities. But before we do, it also brought me one other question, one final question in dealing with the the serial killers itself. Before we dig more into your podcast, your format, and the and the the, the steps you take to get the uh, the facts and information that you that you study, um, and that question really is like with with all the all the information that you gathered, all the cases that you've looked at. Could a case be made where serial killers could be rehabilitated? Could they be brought back to the light? Um, no. Oh, no. So that's the thing that we no. see. That, <laughs> um, it's just no. like with pedophiles, like that innate feeling they have in their brain, it's an uncontrollable urge. I've only seen one or two cases where a pedophile has recognizes they have a problem and they don't want to commit that problem. So they, like, I know one moved to like a deserted island so he wouldn't be around children because he knew he could not control himself and so that's the issue that we see take for example everybody knows ted bundy ted bundy's in jail for uh killing people he escapes what does he do immediately goes and kills people because that's what even even, well even right now we're seeing that where they've released so many different prisoners um because of the coronavirus right um several of them have have been released and already rearrested for for doing something again killing a person pedophilia whatever so no it's a it's a compulsion and an obsession and once that's there there's nothing and i'm not talking about your your regular killer okay um we could make a case for the fact that gypsy rose blanchard could could I say that very lightly, could be rehabilitated. Now, when you look at her case and you think about what she went through and all those different things, there's obvious trauma there. She was absolutely abused, you know, definitely created by her mother. But now who is she? And she really is someone that I, I don't think we're going to see the last of Gypsy when she gets out in 10, you know, in her at her 10 year mark or eight years if she gets early release. Um, like Nicholas Godijan, we talk about him. He only killed one person. But I would never want that man released. Now, no. somebody, you know, somebody like a maybe Scott Peterson, and this is a Thank hard you. topic for <laughs> us because I believe he's one hundred percent guilty. And Christina's kind of like, yeah, I kind of think so. And Colleen thinks he's innocent. But so we're doing a head to head on our podcast about this. Okay. But um, for instance, if even even with me thinking that he's guilty, if they were to release Scott Peterson tomorrow, I don't think he'd kill anyone else. I, I don't I, I think that that was a one off thing, you know, but serial killers. No, no, there's nope, no rehabilit- rehabilitation um, and pedophiles. The same thing. The only thing that I think that you can do to 
to stop pedophiles is like, you know, the um, medical castration because then they can't do what they would want to do, you know? So that's the only thing, but the urge would still be there. And I still think that they have um, other ways to be sexually satisfied. Right. It can't just be like straight medical castration, you know, it has to be a chemical castration as well. And even Mm -hmm. that it's, you know, therapy, parole, you know, following the guidelines of, you know, the sex offender registry and not living near. Even then that's very, it's right, still it's, very right, it's, right. Cause people watch children and they, mm-hmm. uh, they'll always have that feeling. And so that's what we see pretty much in the repeat offenders, serial killers mm-hmm. and rapists and pedophiles are all people who cannot control those urges and most of them have had the urges since they were uh, preteens and now into adulthood, even to mm-hmm. elderly people who have been in jail until they were 80. They got out and then, you know, two days later, you know, sexually assaulted a child. And mm-hmm. so that's what we see so, so often is that they can't control the urges. And so they're just going to reoffend. And they want, especially if they've been in prison before, they know what it takes to be arrested and if they can or cannot deal with the prison system and so that's why um there was the um it was a photographer he was a humanitarian uh from england who then went uh into asia and like molested and sexually exploited thousands of Mm -hmm. children um like he went there because super lax over there no one was caring what he was doing he got caught because he was uploading it to the internet and then what he they found him in england and got him and then i believe he killed himself and uh so but they will do anything they can to escape justice or get away with the crimes they want to commit so you'll see a lot Mm -hmm. of people running to different countries where things aren't as you know secure prison systems are less likely to catch them and to keep them in prison for a long time you know it just depends on which country they choose to go to right um, extradition it doesn't happen from that that country you know right so. so they will always have those feelings for certain crimes and it especially for uh anything dealing with sexual assaults and then multiple killings for pleasure they're not really able to be re- rehabilitated when you guys now we're going to dive back into to your podcasting itself and and going in obviously with with things like this you, you got to know what you're talking about so i imagine there's hours upon hours upon hours of research <laughs> in, the, in, the, in each case that was being generous <laughs> you know but i i imagine like where, where do you mostly get your information like the, the thing that made me ask this is like obviously i know like the the case files once they're once they're completed are are you know public record anybody can go find a case file to a close case but like going in and finding out like the family history of these people like we're not to give away exact sources but how do you get a hold of these things do you do you interview the families or yes so we have uh several experts come on our podcast and our youtube channel um to discuss you know the information that they firsthand know that they get access to certain documents and are privileged to certain information and they, you know, they won't share things that are confidential that they're not allowed to share with us. Right. Um, but they will share what they can that isn't in the public domain, but it's not, you know, illegal for them to tell us. But we also do go, you know, the extra several miles to reach out to victims, to reach out to families, 
to reach out to lawyers. So in the Jody Arias case, we interviewed and we continue to interview Kirk Nurmi, her defense attorney. Oh, wow. With the Gypsy mm-hmm. case, we spent you know years with the family and the lawyers and HBO and the enti- the towns they each lived in, the communities, mm-hmm. the doctors. We got really super in-depth with that. Um, and then, so we on our YouTube, we just covered um, Alyssa Attorney. We interviewed Sarah Attorney, the one who's fighting to get justice for her, um, her, her sister. Okay. Um, and so we really look into all aspects of what we can um, gather from all sides. And that's, so we have a lot of people who do like forensic death investigators, uh, FBI, the prosecuting attorneys, uh, judges, defense attorneys. So they can bring together an entire picture of a case on each aspect. And all of them brings their expertise knowledge into the amount of knowledge we already have. Well, we get the information, you know, in legal ways, but we really go several extra miles to make sure it's accurate and from, you know, mm-hmm. the correct sources and reliable sources. I, I got to. Right. So we're not just we're not just like doing a Google search and, and calling it a day. So um, like with Gypsy, I, like I said, we spent four years on that case. Um, it's almost five now. And uh, I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours doing things the girls spent hundreds of hours doing things colleen spent hours and hours and hours and hours just going through every single medical document and that was signed over to us by gypsy you know we had to petition for those and we had to fight for those um it almost went to a point where we were going to have to go to a court case for her because Dee had actually um, and that's her mother had actually made it so that nobody could get it she closed the records so that nobody but her could get them so we had to fight for that. We had to fight all the hospitals. There was one point in time, one of the hospitals came back and said, I don't have any, we don't have any records. And I said, I, I don't think so. And so then one of our nurses, you know, she was able to look in the system to see that there were files there. She couldn't go in and look at them, but she could see that they were there. And so then she basically sent them another thing that said, hey, uh-uh, I know I c- that they're there. They're definitely there. And then they screwed up because they sent back a thing saying, well, we don't have case number blah, 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 or file number blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, that's really funny because we didn't tell you that we wanted file number blah, 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 blah. We right. said that we wanted all files. And if you can tell me that there's a specific file number, then there's a specific file because you don't <laughs> just have an open file sitting around in your freaking you know, database. So why don't you send those over? And then immediately the next day, amazingly so, we were getting, you know, uh, an, an email copy of those those documents. Well, so, um, yeah. So we go a long ways into looking into this. Well, you, you said something that, that, that like, really sparked my imagination. I, I, got, I got to imagine, you know, like, what do, what do these people, like, talking to defense attorneys and judges and, and even some of the families of the victims or families of the of the perpetrator uh, and everything else, like like, what do they think about what you guys, what you ladies are doing? I mean, when you approach them and say, "Hey, we want to, you know, review the case and and talk about it on air," like, how do people normally react to that? Well, so most of the time, it's a very positive thing because, mm-hmm. um, like with uh, Sarah Attorney, she's trying to get justice for her sister, so she wants to share that information. Um, Mm -hmm. We also interviewed one of uh, the only remaining surviving Ted Bundy victims and, Mm -hmm. you know, giving them that opportunity to share their story from their perspective 
and be able to, you know, not have it twisted by, you know, people's narratives, but for them to share what they go through, what they went through and how they cope and what other people can do to help not just them, but future in other victims. Um, and, and so, I think it's, yeah, most oh, of the time, ahead, like, like most of the time it's very um, positive. They want people to understand what's going on because obviously, you know, you can Google any, you know, true crime case and there are speculative articles and there's accusations. Um, and so a lot of the times, you know, stories get distorted and there are rumors about uh, people and about, you know, who did what and where and when and why and giving the victim's family or the victim or even, you know, the perpetrator's family, giving them the opportunity to share their inside knowledge of who that person is or was and what, you know, that community is about. They're usually very, very receptive to wanting to tell their story. So that's what we try to do is we don't, we have questions that, you know, to keep on a baseline of what knowledge we want to make sure we get from people. Right. But usually we just have them share their story. And then if they haven't answered kind of a question that we want to talk about, then we'll ask that. But usually they do a pretty darn good job of explaining um, <laughs> their own case. I mean, it is a mixed bag, though. Like, okay, so let's think, for instance, we are the number one experts on Gypsy Rose Blanchard. There's literally no one else out there that knows more about the case than than, the, than, than our team. And I would say we even know more than the family and Gypsy herself because of everything that we have that not everyone else has. Like, Gypsy doesn't even have all of her own medical documents. Now, we're providing those to her because we, you know, we worked with her to get them. Um, right. And when she gets out, um, the nurse, that the, the head nurse that worked on that case with us is Titania Gosquer. And um, Titania actually knew Dee Dee growing up. She was one of her best friends in high school. So it was very personal for Titania to put this together. But when I say it's a mixed bag, here's the thing. Like, so we started off with them and I started off by reaching out to Christy Blanchard, which is the stepmother. Um, she's very kind. You know, we had a great relationship going for three years. It was very copacetic. You know, we had a great, we had a great working relationship. They worked with me to get all kinds of different information. I spoke with Gypsy a lot, all these different things. And then it changed when we changed. So um, in the investigation, you know, when I went first went down to meet the family, the very first thing I told them was, is look, I'm not here for a narrative story. Okay. So I don't want to do the narrative of whatever it is that I think this show, this show should be, or what you want it to be or what Dee's family wants it to be. This is going to be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the good, the bad, the ugly. Right. And they were fine with that. And they were like, yes, that's absolutely what we want. Right until the point where that didn't align with their truth anymore. Yes. And when we started investigating and we found things of holes in their stories, of inaccuracies, of blatant lies, um, and, and just absolutely hiding of the truth, then they no longer wanted to participate and they became it. And it wasn't even like, well, we don't want to do this with you anymore. It was, we're going to destroy you. And they tried to, and it, and it was, and it was horrible. We spent the last um, you know, year of our life in, in hell. And we thought, okay, well, it's all over and 2020 is going to be great. And then 2020 said, ha ha, let me raise you one, hold my beer. Right. you know, <laughs> um, And it's kicked everyone's ass. But 2019 was a hard year for all of us. Um, and we spent a lot of that time really arguing with um, 
the Blanchard family with other people because they did not like that our honest truth was the honest truth. And we weren't going to just sugarcoat it and tell the story that they wanted us to tell. Well, you raise you raise a very, uh, very, very strange question uh, that I imagine has to weigh on your guys' mind uh, with, with dealing with these cases. You're not dealing with just cold cases like the Ted Bundys or the Charlie Mansons that have been, you know, dead and gone or, or never see the light mm-hmm. of day again. Like with this mm-hmm. recent case, you're, you have somebody who you've been in contact with, associated with, everything else that mm-hmm. is going to see a parole date. Not too far in the future. Don't you worry about you and your family's safety, especially exposing some of these truths that they didn't want exposed? No, I'm always packing. (laughs) So it definitely is something that we are aware, you know, cautious of and aware of. You know, we don't, you know, give out our actual addresses um, or our personal numbers. Um, But it's more in the sense that it's, a lot of the cases we do cover, the people, the perpetrators are going to be in jail for a very long time. And there are, it's not just us they get mad at. You know, it's a lot right. of other people too who are going to cover it. Um, like Leticia Stauk, uh, with, you know, the stepmom of Gannon who she killed. Like, she's still waiting on a, an apology from the, <laughs> about who apologized for the murder she committed because she said she didn't do it, but she did. So, you know, those kind of perceptions are, you know, in their mind, but she's going to be going to prison for life. And if she were to, you know, life, but get opportunity of parole after 20 years, I mean, in 20 years, she's not going to know who we are or that we talked about it. Well, Gypsy, yes, Gypsy is going to know that we, we communicated with Gypsy for years. So she knows, her family knows, everybody knows that we have that knowledge. And I'm hoping as that Gypsy grows older that she will seek out some sort of help. She hasn't yet. Nobody's pushing her to get that help while in prison, and she definitely needs it. She was traumatized a lot as a child and growing up and had a very dysfunctional life that she does need mental help with. She's physically healthy. The right. whole, um, her outer and inner physical health, she is perfectly healthy. Um, it's her mental health that now needs the focus. Um, and so I'm, we're all very hopeful that Gypsy will get the help, at least in the future, and hopefully become a productive member in, of society. We do have concerns that if she doesn't, she could be at risk of not necessarily killing somebody but being a victim of abuse herself again or taking out feelings on somebody else um because she was controlled by her mom for a very long time and so a lot of times when you have victims that they're comfortable being a victim and so that's like domestic abuse survivors deal with that she's also she's also become a sociopath i mean yes there's no there's no doubt about it she's very manipulative she's become a sociopath so yes okay so for your answer gypsy has my home address she knows where i live she knows my phone number she knows all of those things because i dealt with them for four years um and i was very close with her stepmother for a very long time am i worried about gypsy rose blanchard no not really um like i said i mean i'm always packing so that's one but um two um no i mean seriously like i i definitely feel that i'm not dd blanchard i can defend myself you know right. but um but beyond that um i i you know i don't think that i 
I, I look at it as, as, as if we're just, just like anyone else who deals in criminal justice, law enforcement, true crime, we're just the same. You know, we're investigators and this is what we do. And, you know, we are very professional about it. And, and I would say, especially in the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case, we're experts, you know. And so I do think that there is a level of, you know, yeah, could Gypsy come after me? Sure. But do I think that I'm worried about it? Am I looking over my shoulder every day going, oh, shit, she's going to get out and I need to worry about this? No. 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 Now, am I going to her parole hearing? Yes, I am. And I am going to her parole hearing with a very specific reasoning is Titania and I have decided that what we're going to do is represent the Petrie family, which is Dee Dee's family, who feels that she has done absolutely no things to, you know, rehabilitate herself, get any type of help. And, and her and the Blanchard family has not encouraged this in her. Um, and if they have not to any success, you know, they just it's right. like, oh, Gypsy, you can should do, definitely go and get some help but then nobody actually does anything and i don't think they really really care if she is is better um so but here's the thing is we're going to go to the parole hearing because originally titania wanted to go and she wanted to present stuff to keep her in for the extra two years and when we first started this case we all were like gypsy should be released now you know she needs help now and she's not getting help in prison well then we found out that she could have gotten help in prison and chose not to so then that changed things for us and then so when i started thinking about well if she stays in the whole 10 years because she has to do 80 percent, so she's up at parole for eight years right. or she does the whole 10. okay well if she does the whole 10 then the justice system no longer has any control over gypsy rose blanchard there's no parole officer there's no nothing she just did her time and she's out right. um so nobody will know what happens you know when she does that and if she's not going home to a situation where they're going to encourage her to get better then the best thing for us to do is to go and at eight years lobby for yes we would like to see her released for these eight years with a provision that for the next two years she has to do intensive in inpatient treatment at a facility that is equipped to help her get better because otherwise i am worried that gypsy could reoffend, and it's in in a second murder it's not out of the possibility of yeah. uh you know realm of possibility because i could see her getting angry at her sister or her stepmother for getting in the way of her very new relationship with her father and being jealous and doing something like that um and and again I, i'm not saying that she will but i definitely we've talked with people who have been um you know, prison guards and, and people like that have dealt with her and seen what she's like now. And they all say that they believe that Gypsy will reoffend in many different ways. Now, it doesn't mean murder, but it definitely means that she's not going to be on a path to, you know, good things. And I'm sorry my phone keeps dinging. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> um, well, no, but it, it definitely leads me to the next question. Like, like, like you lady said in the beginning of the show, uh, one of the major goals of, of your show uh, and, and all the research and all the time that you put into this is, is kind of building a database or, or a, if you will, a catalog of signs and, and, and situations that could, be, that could serve as warnings or red flags for, I assume, the layman, everyday person like myself all the way up to, you know, criminal investigators and, and stuff like that. What, if anything, can you release? Like, what, what have you found out? What patterns have you found that would be red flags for somebody if you're walking down the street and saw somebody and they were exhibiting certain behaviors that you would feel confident confident in saying like that's a potential problem um, so it definitely it depends 
on what you're seeing because a lot of people have social kind of anxiety and social problems where they may, you know, look at the ground and shuffle or walk slowly or stare at you for a long time. And that doesn't, you know, mean that they're thinking about hurting you. It just means that they are socially awkward and right. don't know how to approach situations correctly, which is very so common in the world, but right. especially in this country. Um, it's more so if people know, you know, your friends, your family, if you see that your uh, eight years old or, you know, teen, preteen teenagers have an interest in, uh, you know, killing or finding dead animals, um, doing more like sciency experiments on living things, um, or then seeing, you know, abuse. If you have two kids and the older one is very um, aggressive to the younger one, um, or kids that don't, or in teens who don't feel like consequences apply to them, or that they're very manipulative and try to lie and are successfully good liars as a young person, um, and then knowing you know somebody's life circumstances, do they, uh, did they suffer any abuse or trauma? Um, did their, are do they have a mental health disorder? Do the, their parents have a mental health disorder? Um, if you're being raised by uh, a schizophrenic parent or a uh, bipolar, or you know, in like Lacey Spears' case, yeah. yeah, or like Gypsy, you know, Munchausen by proxy, um, you know, what is their personal life? So it's not necessarily you know strangers on the street can you know identify you know a, a criminal. It's more the people in your home and in your community. If you know somebody and they're exhibiting these kind of warning signs, it's, you know, that's the time to approach the people close to them. So if you're, you know, a family friend or the neighbor and you notice that the teenager is doing these things, you know, and you notice it and maybe it's a pattern or you've seen it several times, you know, then it's, you know, more of a responsibility if you can identify that's happening to communicate that to the parents. Be like, hey, I, you know, I saw Jimmy in the backyard uh, he killed a cat and he cut it open or he found this animal and has been collecting roadkill and burying it in the backyard. You know, well, I just, also think that we have to have a closer look at mental health in this, in this yes. country. Um, one of the things with gypsy, with gypsy, with the gypsy case is if you go back and you look at Dee, um, there were signs that Dee was a sociopath, absolute 100% signs. And everybody just ignored them. It just was an ignoring of an ignoring of ignoring. And it wasn't like a sociopath who you're like, okay, well, they're sociopathic. They don't have the same thoughts and feelings and stuff. There was mean sociopathic tendencies from very young age with her. Um, now, a lot of that was caused by um, um, her mother and even encouraged by her mom. Um, but I think that I, at one point in time, when I was still on good terms with Gypsy, she wrote me a letter and one of the things that she had said was, because I had changed from the focus of our show that we were originally creating. So when we started off, we weren't doing a podcast. We were starting to, we were going to do a TV series and an after show, like discussion, like a Walking Dead, Talking Dead kind of thing, right? right. Um, but our, our after show would have been with panelists that had, you know, experts in fields, like you know, justice reform and psychologists and things like that. So that's what we were looking to do. And we still are, we're still working on that, but it ended up being a podcast for a whole different reason. But she wrote me a letter because I changed my view of being, this is the Gypsy Rose Blanchard story to, well, we can't explain the story unless we go all the way back. And that's to Dee Dee. 
right? And so right. for what it was Dee Dee like as a child, how did she grow up, what happened, why did she do this to Gypsy, and what caused Gypsy to be the way Gypsy is. So when I talked to her about that, she begged me. She said, I just want you to know that, she, that my mother is still my mother, and please don't just portray her as a monster. And well, my answer back to her was, is I would never, because Gypsy, your mom was a classic sociopath from a very young age and instead of somebody seeing that and saying wait a minute what is wrong with this child why is she behaving this way what can we do to stop it let's go get her some help because it's such a bad thing especially back when Dee Dee was young it was a whole you didn't talk about mental health there was no such thing as bipolar or sociopaths or any of those things that they just talked about on a regular basis that was reserved for you know the crazy men right. but um, I you know I told her I said if you're mom had gotten the right help I don't think we'd be sitting here there is a way you know like like we talked earlier some sociopaths become serial killers not the vast majority of them the vast majority of them are extremely successful people and that is because people in their lives helped them um you know I know somebody who has a child like that and what they have done to help this child is to not even inform the child that that person is a sociopath that but to give them the tools that they need to be a successful human being and be a productive member of society instead of going out and killing people well i definitely know the answer to this but i'll ask it anyway because i know there's going to be a lot of people on here that'll say it uh Mm -hmm. but how much is uh is media uh a catalyst for for some people especially who have uh, uh pathological disorders uh in a sense like what i what i mean by media i don't necessarily mean like the news like the bad news on the news although that could play play a part too uh but i'm talking i'm talking violent video games violent movies uh rap and heavy metal how in your you know, guys in your guys's experience how much has has those influences help create Um, the monster if you will i don't think it really has at all because uh those you know types of media you know video games and music they're more outlets than uh Mm -hmm. influences Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. have rage or people are upset about most you know metal and rap music is about social justice um or you know relationship issues and so people identify with that but it's you know they're not it's not like encouraging, like go out and kill your sister. Um, right. And, well, know, even if you think about like, they don't thinking, sorry, sorry <laughs> let me, let me say something about yeah. the media, like the, the, the song part. So I just watched the whole thing about Biggie Smalls and Tupac Shakur, you know, and it's still never determined whether or not they did anything to each other or not. Right. But, right. but, um, they didn't kill, you know, those type of people that hang out with them or are influenced by them, whatever. They're not killing because they listen to rap. They're killing because it's a lifestyle they live. And it's not influenced. The lifestyle is not meant to be because of the music. The lifestyle is the lifestyle. That's just the music they happen to identify with. Right. So I don't believe that that music is influencing them to be gangbangers who go out and kill people. That's not, I, I, I don't think that's happening. And, and Colleen can go on about, um, uh, you know, video games. I also don't think that somebody plays, you know, like you, you like you just said, your son was playing Grand Theft Auto, Auto today, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that Grand Theft Auto is going to in, influence your child to go out and steal cars and beat down women? When he was younger, maybe, because he didn't understand the right and wrong of it. Now he's a sure. little bit older, 
and he understands. You know, I was able to the instill some. Yeah. And... <laughs> but like, as a parent, well, you realized, hey, maybe my four-year-old shouldn't play this game. Right. <laughs> right. That's why you know, uh, you know, industries have you know PG thirteen or rated M for mature. Um, and the problem I think we do see in when people talk about you know the media and does it influence people is what are we as adults and parents allowing our children or vulnerable people to do you know you don't have to give your kid you know a playstation and call of duty when they're seven you know they don't need that you know they don't need to be watching you know adult swim and you know rated r movies as you know a nine-year-old you know those it Mm -hmm. those kinds of content are meant for people over you know 13 or because the subject matter needs to be understood from somebody who recognizes that this is a movie and is not how normal adults behave and so right and so like when it comes to you know influencing it's more um that people identify with certain concepts and things like potentially you know we see you know people who are interested in um, shooting crimes. Maybe they do play shooting video games, but it's not about, you know, them killing people in the video games. It's usually about they're taking that information, like, oh, guns kill people, and applying that principle to the situations they experience. So, like, in... uh, We see a lot, especially in high school and college, shootings. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they have interest in guns, and maybe they play these video games, but typically... When they go and commit that shooting, it's because they were either bullied or, you know, felt unfair treatment. And, and they make a choice. Right. They make that choice. And so it's, I think when it term, in terms of like media influence, I actually, I think the, one of the biggest destructive factors we have in this century is the access of social media to the younger generation. Yeah. Oh, 100% yeah. agree with that. Because people just can communicate like- with no feelings and you know, behind a screen and can say whatever they want and people get, take it more to heart than others. And that's how we see, you know, online bullying progress to suicide or to shootings. And people, you know, keyboard warriors can say whatever they want and not have to deal with those consequences of contributing to the aspect of somebody's sanity and mental health and the crimes that they may commit because somebody else made them feel that way. And because the internet is available all the time, instead of just being bullied at school during the school day, you know, now they can be bullied at school during the school day, but then also all afternoon, evening, and night on the internet. Well, that that I well, I, I, also, I 100% I also, agree with that because of uh, because of the fact being on on the internet myself and having young kids that you know, regardless of what I say to their mother, wind up on the internet anyway. Um, I I absolutely see that, and I I, I agree. Um, I come from a world. Where I think I think uh, today's society, especially in younger ch- children and 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 millennials and and twenty somethings, you know, um, they they do seem to have this mentality that instant gratification without consequences is the best way I can Absolutely. describe it. And I think Absolutely. a meme I think a meme on Facebook best described as too many people. Social media has too made made too many people comfortable with the idea that they can say whatever they want without getting punched in the mouth. 
and yeah, I'm exactly. <laughs> and I think yes. I think well, I think I'm, people yeah, live I'm their life that way. So I agree. I agree with you. I'm a twenty something. I'm twenty five. <laughs> and that's what I, I was going to say. Is, Colleen is the youngest here and there is not a lifetime. She didn't live a life, you know, really without social media or some sort of internet access or any of these things. You know, she, her whole life is about that. My life, Christina's life and Tori, who is our other person, you know, we're all in our forties. So right. we grew up without the internet. I mean, I remember when it was like, you know, DOS, right? Like, and you had to move the little, the little triangle, you know, like the whole thing. <laughs> but, uh, It'd be wrong before dial-up, Colleen, even. We didn't even yeah. have that See, at that I, point, you know? When I was using the internet as a, like, probably 9, 10 is when dial-up was just kind of becoming popular and AIM and AOL. So, like, I had right. flip phones and stuff in middle school and high school. <laughs> but that's still, so, you still have not had a better. time period without technology, right. okay? Like, right. like, so you have massive technology at all times. So you've grown up in that age. We grew up in a different time where there wasn't all right. that. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have those things. Um, so I think there's a difference in how we see it and how other people see it but uh, yes i do however believe now do i think video games maybe you know like here's the thing this is what i think about this all is that it is the parent's job in society to regulate what it is that you are putting into your child's brain okay and if you are not in connection with your child and understanding what that child is seeing feeling doing on a regular basis then you're the problem it's not the child's problem it's not media's problem just like if you're an adult and you don't like something on tv what do you do you change the channel right Right. well that's the same thing for your children you are responsible when they are young for telling them no you're not watching that no you're not doing this blah 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 like i was a friend of mine's husband worked for best buy and this woman came in and she asked him for Grand Theft Auto, and she was explaining to him, you know, that she wanted it for her six-year-old kid or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, ma'am, do you understand that this is rated, you know, adult? And she was like, oh, yes, yes. I just turned down the, I make him put it on mute so he can't hear the cuss words. And he looked at her and then he, you know, he was like, are you serious? Okay, well, all right. And I'm thinking to myself, if ma'am, if that is what you think is the problem with that video game for your six-year-old, you have more problems than I can deal with today. Because the cussing is the least of your worries about that child playing that game. Exactly. (laughs) So, and I think with social media, the same thing. I saved my daughter from going through a situation where she could have possibly been um, gravely injured, possibly even faced, you know, if they had done enough damage to her, she could have ended up, um, you know, dead from something that was happening on social media. And the only reason that it didn't happen was because I was in tune with my child. I checked her social media profiles. I, and I wasn't like checking into her profile, but I had her on my, you know, my friend's account where I could go and look at what she was putting out there and what were people doing with her and what was she saying? And, and I found out, and this is when she was in high school, and I found out that these girls were accusing her of, um, creating this this fake twitter account and doing all this stuff and the whole school wanted to jump her well she wasn't in school anymore she was being homeschooled for her last year of school because of some health issues and some different things right and they had invited her out to this football game where the whole school had had decided that they were going to go ahead and jump her well it turns out the person behind all of this was her best friend because she was jealous and so but if i had not known what was happening that day, if I had not checked into her Facebook and said to the young lady that was accusing my daughter of saying these things, um, excuse me, 
what in the hell are you talking about? Because, you know, and it wasn't that I was like, well, my daughter would never say that because the first thing I did was go and look and I was like, oh, well, wait a minute. No, that's not how she speaks. That's not what she did. And these timestamps do not align with things that we were doing at the time that these timestamps happened. So then I knew that, you know, it's not my daughter. And I asked her even about it. Even then I still asked her, I was like, did you do this? And she was like, are you kidding me? I said, well, let me see your phone. And I, I checked through all her phone and everything. And, you know, it became clear that it wasn't her and but if I hadn't been there if I hadn't been in my child's life if I hadn't been present and I hadn't been looking for things to potentially be harmful to my child or be that my child child is harmful to others then that would have gone a very different way that day so I encourage people as parents to be more involved in your children's lives and so i'm gonna say jump on that same bandwagon not just parents um so i am younger i'm 25 when i was in high school um i dealt with a situation where something i had said was taken out of context and um it really upset the people at my school to the point where they made a facebook hate group against me where the entire school was there just bashing me um, a YouTube video was made, a uh, t-shirt was made, um, I was beaten up at school, I, and it got to the point my bullying was really severe uh, in middle and high school where I had attempted suicide several times. Um, and when I spoke to the school administration officials and telling them what was happening, they said that it was my fault, that I shouldn't have said anything. And they refused to do anything. And so it's not just, you know, parent. Yes. You know, underage people, whether that be. Ability. If you like, so, you know, your principal cannot, you know, ground you at home from your phone. But if you know that they are bullying people mm-hmm. and somebody brings you the evidence of like, this is what they're saying about me online on Facebook, they're texting me these hateful things. They're making memes about me and you show that. And then they say, well, you shouldn't have done anything. They're part of the problem too. Cause it's about all of society, you know, it takes a village. So it's the responsibility mm-hmm. of every person to address that abhorrent behavior of anybody you know you see somebody beating somebody up you stop you see a car accident you check to make sure everybody's okay and the same thing applies to um bullying and behavior in children if not more because they are uh influenced by you know things and behaviors and you know they see somebody they um bullying somebody then Maybe the person who wouldn't say any said anything in the first place, but they see, you know, five other people are saying it. Well, then they're going to join in and, you know, continuously to taunt people. And it leads to then these higher rates of suicide of young kids and teenagers. Like even I've seen. Um, so as a nurse, I worked um, at Children's Hospital um, and did a whole unit that was involved with um, eating disorders. Right. And I thought children, you know, eight years old who are anorexic bulimic and have attempted suicide at eight because of you know the things that their parents but also things that their community has instilled in them and the emotional problems that 
is just happening because the adults are not being the adult in the room and correcting the behavior. That's right. That's uh, that. I think I think you, you ladies are hitting the nail right on the head. Like not just <laughs> not just like with well, murder, what... not just with like murderers and and rapists and all that, but I mean just in general, like uh, in in general society that you see on see today. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I think a lot of it stems down to parents needing to step up be more involved in your children's life and, and, and definitely teaching actions have consequences like all around actions have consequences, whether it's a video game an action in a video game to, as we were saying about bullying and, 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 uh, you know, uh, creating this false narrative, like, like the, you were saying, uh, like Colleen was saying with the, uh, eight year old girls committing, trying to commit suicide and, and bulimic because of, you know, body image. They're eight. Let them be kids, right. you know. Yeah. <laughs> right, especially I like they people it develop down to, I think it boils down to, in general, not just parents, but yes, teachers, society. society. Be more aware. Be more aware, and be kinder. Be listen, and this goes into the campaign that we've started. You know, um, so in response to all the different things that have happened. It started off with with George Floyd this year with that and um, us responding to that. We were doing some work with um, a couple of our experts. We asked them to come in and talk about different aspects of this case. You know, we asked Stephen David Lampley to talk about rioting and what goes on in the riots and what are riot gear people, you know, what are the riot team, what are their protocols and things like that. And we asked, um, Joseph Scott Morgan came in and he talked about the autopsy and those things that happened and why this was this. And, and then we also had Cheryl McCollum, who is the founder of the cold case research Institute. And she works a lot with us on a lot of different things and all of them do. I mean, they're just wonderful people, but, um, she came on and she was talking about, you know, the idea of looking at the crime scene and all these things and we kind of got into a, a, a discussion about how do we as america get through this like there is violence and chaos and rage and anger and it's not necessarily unwarranted um but we can't continue on the way that we are we're never going to solve anything by burning down buildings and destroying things okay and, and hurting other people that is not the answer um and so we started a campaign called hashtag love wins um, and she was you know explaining hey you know we should be talking about peace and you don't fight hate with hate you fight hate with love so we kind of got into this and we thought about it and she said hey guys why don't we sell a t-shirt and we'll, we'll create a scholarship fund. And I'm, we thought that was a wonderful idea. So we started it <laughs> up me. of in the name of peace and having meaningful conversations and finding a way to in these communities and in, in places that, you know, they need reform. And it, the way that it, we're going to get through this is by sitting down and having conversations, not to make by real change, place. right. To make right, real to make change. Real, right. So, we started the scholarship fund and basically what we're asking uh, our listeners to do is any college age student that wants to apply can they just have to send in a 30 second video explaining how they lead with love and send us a bio about themselves and their educational goals and they can do that to our email at um, goodwivesdish which is d-i-s-h at the end there um, and that's wives like more than one wife um, so it's 
goodwivesdish at gmail.com. And we will be looking at those and putting it together. We're hoping to raise about $5,000. We have a GoFundMe where we're donating all the proceeds from the GoFundMe to the scholarship fund. And we have t-shirts, cups, mugs, you know, everything we, we could possibly, all kinds of different merchandise on our T Public, um, which we'll be giving you guys the links to for him to put up. Yes. But you guys can purchase and portions of the proceeds of those will go to it. And we're hoping that we raise, you know, maybe about $5,000 for and, and change a child's life, you know, and give them something towards going to college. And then Christina um, even went a step further with that. And she came up with something amazing. I'd love for her to tell you about it since she hasn't talked quite as much as me and Colleen, which is normal. That's normal. <laughs> <laughs> Very normal. Very normal. Well, we, we'd like to start an organization called the Gale Force. And what Gale Force stands for, Gale is good apples of law enforcement. And we chose the name because Gale Force wins are strong, fierce wins. And right. we're supporters of law enforcement, but we're against corruption and brutality and the bad things that go on in law enforcement. So what we want to do is give a place you know, when, whenever something bad happens with law enforcement, they're referred to as the bad apples. And that leaves people asking the question, well, where are the good apples? How come we're not hearing from the good apples? So we want to give a safe place and a platform for those good apples to be able to speak up, to speak up about any type of corruption. Um, there's a huge stigma for law enforcement officers reaching out for mental health. And that's something that needs to change. You know, it's one of the most stressful jobs. They have a higher suicide rate than most professions. And it sh there shouldn't be that stigma where somebody who may have seen things that no person should ever see, they should be able to reach out and get help and not have the fear of being ostracized or abandoned by their superiors or their coworkers. So we want to start this organization to get started so that there is a place where all of the good people, because we believe that that good outnumbers bad in all aspects. And we want a place for all the good apples to come together and pretty much using the term clean the barrel from the inside so that we can get rid of those stigmas and the corruption or police brutality because we believe that change needs to start from within. Uh, we want to see change within the communities as well. So this, yes. this force would be working inside of their communities to enact change, to bring, you know, things that maybe the community doesn't have. Um, More trust. That maybe, you know, yes, and trust and, and help them because, you know, you don't, standing on the outside looking in, you, you're not doing anything. You need to go into the community and help them from within. I, I agree with that. I, I would I would uh, I would venture to just go a step further uh, for for the regular community, not just the police department. I agree with everything Christina mm -hmm. said. Um, I, I do, but uh, I also think that we have to, as parents and as a community, we need to start teaching mm -hmm. people again to respect law enforcement. Statistically, and, and ladies, you can you can argue with me on this if I'm wrong. Uh, statistically, a lot of the encounters where somebody winds up getting killed by the police, more often than not, is because the person is not complying with the police. Correct. And that's because I mean, of a lack of, of, of respect for the authority of the police department. I like to give an example. I have my kids whenever we walk into a convenience store and there's a police officer there. They go up and shake, their, shake the officer's hand and say thank you. 
Right. Like, I mean, we, and that's what we, we've that's and that's what we've talked about. It needing to be things need to start inside these communities. Um, do and, I believe that there are police officers that are there for the wrong reasons? Absolutely. Oh, so do what? I think it's the yeah. majority? Do I think it's the majority of them? Hell yeah. no. Um, I don't. We work with some of the most amazing, kind, caring people. Just the most giving. And and loving and wanting to help and 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 do things for people that I've ever met, and that's law enforcement that we work with, you know. Okay. And and there's not been a single one of them that I've come away from going, man, that guy's kind of a jerk, or I don't want to work with that person again. We have worked with just amazing, amazing people. Well, that, that's what I mean. I think that right. It starts within these communities. It starts by by changing how these communities view themselves how these children are raised and how law enforcement engages with them. Because I think if law enforcement is more like what we're talking about of them going in and building a trust and understanding and helping this community, if they're going in and they're doing that, then it is more likely for the police brutality to go down. It is more likely for the communities to be raised up and shown that, hey, you know what? You do not have to give in to the gang on the street. You do not have, you have opportunity to get out of a situation that you are in because people do. So if the police are a part of that and they are helping that community, I believe that that will seriously seriously take care of a lot of this problem now do i think that police need better training absolutely i think they need to be trained like you know okay so maybe the police academy needs to be longer or not longer i don't know about that but what i can say is i think that training should not stop at the end of a police academy training should be ongoing forever and ever amen because that's where just like your nurses we have they have to recertify um real estate agents have to take recertification um, lawyers have to take classes, ongoing classes for learn new laws. So why would we not expect our police officers to do the same thing, to understand new things, to help them with new technology, to help them with better understanding of a community, to help them with psychology and different things that could help them be more effective law enforcement? Right. I think the best thing that we can do is, and for not just, you know, we as civilians, but for people in positions of power and people uh, who are, you know, the pillars of communities of firefighters, police officers, you know, soldiers, doctors, nurses, you know, essential workers, pretty much everybody, but especially the people who have more say so in communities to admit that when problems happen, admit that they happened, admit it. Mm-hmm. So that way you give the people that, you know, you're not brushing it over, say yes, this was horrible and wrong and we are firmly against what this happened and we want to make sure that this never happens again please come to the table let's have a conversation what went wrong and why you know what can we do to change it going forward and so that's the whole part about our love wins but also our gale force so that way you know police officers have a safe space where they can say hey you know my brother over here he is kind of, you know, he may have done some drug cases and maybe now he's addicted to drugs. Um, or maybe he has seen some things and maybe he's getting too um, violent with everybody. And, you know, right. what can I do Why? to help him? Right. right. How can I help him? Should, like, because they shouldn't be afraid that they're going to lose their job for asking for them to get help 
or face retaliation by confronting that person like hey dude i think you should get some help and then feel that they're not going to have each other's back that it needs to be a you know a unity of the force but also a unity of the community to come well, together and it doesn't have to stop problem. It doesn't have to stop just with with police officers either or the community yeah. it needs to go into prosecutors defense yes, attorneys the government. justice system government because here's the thing like i think about this in, in the fact of the that you know a lot of the wrongfully convicted cases um, one of the ones we're dealing with out of texas is rodney reed and we've done a whole, whole lot on rodney reed we're even working trying to work on a documentary about it and um the thing is is with that they that is absolutely 100 percent there is no question in most people's minds except for some of the very highly racist people that are involved in it and the police that, the police force that actually you know screwed it all up on purpose because they were covering for a guy who you know was the was the fiance of the woman murdered and it was her you know white woman white fiance cop and a black man and her lover you know and and they blamed it on him and it's very very clear that he did not do this and but they don't want to admit it and you know why they don't want to admit it because they don't want to admit they got it wrong and i think that when you're a when you're in law enforcement and you're in justice the justice system you cannot be afraid to go back and look at something and go oh shit we really screwed this up you know, we, we really messed up and it is our fault and we are so very sorry. And what can we do to make this up to you? Because, you know, they're afraid one, because then does that open other cases that we have to look at to see if they're corrupt or two, does that mean we're going to be sued out the ass for, you know, for keeping this person in prison for 20 some odd years. But in all reality, none of that freaking matters when you're talking about a man's life. So yeah, he's on death row. He, he's on death row. And and it needs to be more of that coming forward where people where, where the justice system is not afraid to say oops you know i'm so sorry but oops we really screwed up right especially in dna cases so mm -hmm. back in you know 60s 70s 80s 90s uh even early 2000s dna was not readily available to be tested and proven more factually correct and so we have many, many people who are in prison for crimes that there is DNA that was taken at the time, but that was not tested because the technology right. didn't exist. The technology exists now, but they're so backlogged that they haven't tested thousands of cases that could mm -hmm. and people have died in prison or on death row because of DNA samples that were not tested. And there was an after case where the DNA was tested after the man had already been put to death and it, he didn't do it. And he died because of the DNA. And I don't know, you know, communities need to be better about, you know, kind of funding for that, pushing for those samples to be tested, you know, trying to expedite, um, try to help solve cold cases. You know, there's a lot of things on that end, but being able to identify that, hey, we need to take a look at this. You know, we have DNA, we should run it. Make sure that the people who we have in jail are the right people, not, you know, the wrong. Because if a person who didn't do it is in jail for a crime they didn't commit, that means the person who did commit the crime is still out there. And that's not justice for the victims.
you know, and it's not justice for anyone. Yeah. And, and we've we've completely blown past your 30, 40 minutes. <laughs> oh, I noticed that. I noticed that. I was actually getting ready for the wrap up here. Uh, yeah, so we should definitely do that. <laughs> so since, This happens a lot. Since, since, it since says, you, and we enjoyed our time talking with you for sure. Oh, I absolutely <laughs> did too. I, I've, I've, I've walked away from this more educated in, in something I never thought I'd be sitting down having a conversation about, to be honest with you. And it's funny because I used to be a... Uh, 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 singer songwriter heavy metal hard rock and i'd write horror horror style lyrics yeah i always called myself a storyteller because i was telling horrible things about you know like things that i know happened in philadelphia but of course i you know i, mm-hmm. I made it fantastical for the for the sake of you know sensationalism and even in that aspect i never once thought about like well let me look it up and see how they would do that like you know, or, or or why they did that, or the psychology behind it. You know, it's always been like just, mm-hmm. it's a story, it. folks. Get over, you know, type deal for me. You know, see me so right. I'm learning about things I never even thought about learning about today, and I appreciate that. That that it was actually it was actually entertaining to 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 talk about these things. Um, but since we segued into it, why don't you ladies go ahead and let everybody know where they can find your shows, both on YouTube and on on. Uh, podcasting and again let everybody know about the uh the the uh uh the hashtag uh love uh oh i'm blanking it love love, love first wins. love wins oh love wins okay, thank Chris- you love wins and, and gale force okay christina can you go ahead and grab the um love wins stuff because i don't have that in front of me but i can do the others and, and of course, uh, uh, I, I'll say it on air just as a reminder. Uh, also, that uh, all these links will be in the description down below. I will have one of the ladies uh, send me those links so that way I make sure they're in the description as I'm putting up the videos and the uh, audio. <laughs> no problem. So you can find our um, you can find our tr- our true crime podcast, The Good Wives Guide to True Crime, um, basically on any of the major podcast players. But if you'd like to actually, um, as well as our Murder by Design YouTube channel, so that's YouTube.com/slash Murder by Design. But if you want to find everything all in one place, we are a actual full fledged. Um, production company all female owned production company and so we have other things besides just true crime go figure um, but you can go to mad ginger entertainment.com so mad like m-a-d ginger like the color of a redhead's hair entertainment like what you watch um, dot com so and there's everything on there our blogs are on there our youtube is on there our podcast is on there we're about to launch a couple new podcasts so you're going to want to keep looking at those um and so you can find it all there otherwise you know obviously um go to apple spotify pandora, pandora. you can find the good wives, you know you find the good wives guide to your crime or you can go to uh if you want to see me and colleen mostly um you go to murder by design at youtube you know, so youtube.com murder by design well i can let so, you know right now as you were talking uh, uh realm of the mist just subscribed to murder by design on YouTube, so. Nice, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And you can even find our podcast syndicated on Realm of the Mist. That is correct. <laughs> that is coming soon, guys. You'll you'll be able to get uh, some of their past uh, podcasts and more currents when they get when we catch up to the catalog, uh, right here <laughs> on Realm of the Mist on on the uh, audio and uh, well, just the audio right now. We we haven't discussed yet about uh, rebroadcasting YouTube, but you never know. I might get there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Continue with your with uh, where where everybody okay. can find everything. Hey, Christina, you're looking for the things that we post when we do the love win stuff on on YouTube. Do you have those? 
that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Let me see if I can find them. I'm sorry. It takes. I, I, yeah, I, I have them, but they're like weird links to read out. So <laughs> they are. They are extremely <laughs> weird links to read out. So um, well, it'll be you know easier. It'll be easier this way. Yeah, just recap have, recap what they are and 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 let them know that, that it'll be yeah. in the description down below. Right. <laughs> it'll be easier on here. Well, it'll, <laughs> yeah. Sure, sure. So our hashtag Love Wins obviously is a campaign, the scholarship fund. You can either send in your um, 30 second How You Lead With Love to goodwivesdish at gmail.com or you can buy the merchandise on our Public site or donate on GoFundMe. You can find that information on our Facebook page at um, facebook.com slash truecrimewives. And then um, obviously Gale Force is something that we have in the works right now, Christina's um, foundation. We're looking to put that together. We're still working on that. It'll probably be a long time coming, but we definitely, um, if you are in that realm of something where you want to help out with something like that, if you're a nonprofit or you'd like to um, fund something, you know, to do something like that, we're absolutely welcome to, you know, you're welcome to send us anything at goodwivesdish at gmail.com. So how about that? And then the links will all be in the show notes, guys. So you can always go and check out those things there. Of course, and uh, and and of course, uh, I'll go ahead and give my my typical uh, realm of the mist spiel here. If you enjoyed this episode in any capacity, hit that thumbs up button, like, share, comment, subscribe, check out all the other great podcasts of Realm of the Mist Entertainment, and of course, all our syndicated shows like the up and coming Good Wise Guide to True Crime podcast coming very soon. And of course, if you prefer your podcast in audio only format, just check out Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora iHeartRadio, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. Once again, i got to thank my guest, ladies. Thank you very much. It's been informative. It's been instructive. And uh, it's been fun. Like, I definitely got to have you get ladies back on again. So We would love Anytime. to. Anytime. Anytime. great time. <laughs> and, guys, I will catch you on the next Breaking the Fourth Wall. Have a good night. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Chris from Realm of the Mist Entertainment. If you enjoyed this video, please hit that thumbs up button. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts that can be found on Realm of the Mist Entertainment's YouTube channel or our sister channel, Sounds Dicey Gaming, for all your tabletop needs. And if you prefer your podcasts in audio-only format, check out Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. To our Patreon supporters, we thank you very, very much. And if you're interested in being a Patreon supporter, please go over to patreon.com slash realm of the mist and just a dollar a month gives you exclusive content and helps our channel out greatly. Guys, again, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you on the next episode. <laughs>